summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> YouTube uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5% Eastern Standard Right, I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. What's up, Oakland? Have you been missing out on live music and comedy? Remember Killer Dinners? Don't worry about a thing, because Soul Sausage Presents Pandementia has brought you the hottest, freshest, sexiest new beast in the Bay Area. The Oakland Unicorn Speakeasy Comedy and Dinner Club in Koreatown, Northgate, featuring comedians from NBC, MTV, Comedy Central, Soul Sausage TV, and YouTube. Tickets and packages, showtimes, and information are all at oaklandunicorn.com. Sponsored by Soul Sausage, Retisk Electronics, and True Healing Collective. Grand opening weekend, August 6th through 9th, featuring Kabir Singh and Xander Beltran. Tickets on sale now at oaklandunicorn.com. That's OaklandUnicorn.com.
Se abrieron majestuosas las puertas de la gloria Porque Roberto Kennedy al cielo ya llegó Como cruel pesadilla se repitió la historia Que hace poco tiempo a su hermano se llevó el día 5 de junio, después de medianoche, en alegre derroche su triunfo celebró. Y luego en un minuto se hundió el mundo en el luto, cuando un vil asesino la vida le quitó. Tus hijos te lloran, tu noble señora. Ay, cómo te sientes con tu hijo en su vientre. No encuentra consuelo y le pide al cielo paciencia y valor. Soñabas en un mundo donde no hubiera guerra, pero la muerte perra no te dejó llegar. A ser el presidente y continuar ardiente la labor que tu hermano no pudo terminar. Soñabas en justicia y en la igualdad del hombre, Luchabas por el pobre y por un mundo mejor Donde no hubiera odio, donde todas las razas Vivieran como hermanos bajo la ley de Dios Babi, Babi Kennedy la raza te llora, ¿qué hacemos ahora? ¿Qué nos faltas tú? Y estás descansando junto con tu hermano y todo mexicano. Ruega por los dos. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night Sun lights up the daytime, moon lights up the night. I light up when you call my name, and you know I'm gonna treat you right. You give me fever. 
Welcome, everybody. This is Labor and Love Radio. You're tuned to MutinyRadio.fm, a homegrown San Francisco station reaching out to the community, to the greater community, California and the whole United States, and the local community, La Mission. We're here in the heart of the mission at 2781 21st Street. And we're bringing you Labor and Love Radio, the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. We tell you. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. What do we got today? Well, we got. Labor news opinion and commentary by, for, and about working people. We've got songs of social significance. 
And we've got a lot of issues that we're going to raise. What's going on right now? Let's start with that. Nothing illustrates the contradictions involved in capital society. Contradictions that are usually slicked over and not noticeable. And one of those is being a worker. Okay, here we are. We're in the midst of a pandemic. The fact that you're a worker and dependent on your income to survive, your working income to survive, puts you at a disadvantage now that there's a virus here. This is something we normally don't notice. We just say, oh, that guy's rich, that guy's not. We're all in this together, which is not true. We're not all in this together. Jesse Jackson said, we didn't all come over on the same boat. But we're all in the same boat now. And of course, he was talking about working people. Okay, so what is a Chicano? This is something we've gotten a lot of... A lot of uh, attention, and rightly so, on the struggle of African Americans to finally break through <laughs> and uh, get white America to notice that there are people here. Oh, yeah, right, okay. But the same oppression that exists for, uh, for African American people exists and has existed for what are called Chicano people. Let's run that down. By the way, while people are figuring they want to change the name of sports teams from the R word, can't say it, and other, other ethnically offensive names, what about the Texas Rangers? We've got an article on them. Last week, we had some sound trouble. We talked about the Lemon Grove incident here in California, the first uh, civil rights suit bought by people of color, 1931. Jeff Bezos keeps on making money. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Bill Young's Battle of the Roundhouse, a look back at the great upheaval, the huge uprising by rail workers and others all over the country, the birth of a national, a national labor movement. Ice Cube has a new song called Good Cop, Bad Cop. We're going we're gonna to play that. And that's when he calls on Good Cop themselves, which is really the only way all this is going to work out. The only way it's going to work out is if people, police, do this themselves. Police from the inside start to change. Boy, that's a hard one to ask for, huh? Anyway, got a fable of the two uniforms. 
We got Samantha B. We got the voices of the people. So I want to play some Samantha B here. Samantha B is a Canadian. Uh, I guess you'd call her a comedian, but in the sense of Trevor Noah, people like that, John Oliver, who take on political targets. So we would call her a satirist. Here she goes, talking about Mr. Trump. I've taken to heart during this pandemic. Besides, the better the banana, the better the bread. It's be prepared. Like, I'd be nowhere right now without the army of Boy Scouts I trapped in my woodshed who taught me that motto. Well, how do you think all that wood got chopped? Don't call their parents. They're fine. Clearly, though, the Trump administration was not prepared for COVID-19. And to find out what exactly went wrong and why, Mike Rubens talked to journalist, author, and noted historian of the what the happened here genre, Michael Lewis. As Trump has said, the coronavirus came out of nowhere. It's an unforeseen problem. What a problem. This is a very unforeseen thing. There's never been a thing like this in the history of the world. Or something that just surprised the whole world. Yep, the whole world. Except the U.S. intelligence community, the CDC, the Pentagon, Trump's own freaky trade advisor, and about a thousand movies, including two starring Brad Pitt. <laughs> the idea that this kind of came out of the blue is insane. The pandemic and the terrible response didn't surprise author Michael Lewis. His most recent book tells how Team Trump bungled the transition from Team Obama. But its true message is, this is what happens when dum-dums who don't give a shit are put in charge of the most complicated, important tasks in the world. That's a fair description. Oh, thank you, Michael Lewis. To learn more, I purchased a plant and sat down remotely with Lewis to ask, what does happen? Tens of thousands of people are going to die because they did not bother to learn about how the Obama administration prepared for a pandemic. Yeah, that. That's what happens. But why? Let's go back. Back before Trump unleashed the tiny failure kraken. Back before he gutted the pandemic response team and other smart efforts to track and fight diseases. Back to this moment. This combination of world's worst first date and double hostage video. Here, outgoing President Obama promises to facilitate a transition that ensures our president-elect is successful. Stirring words. They shake hands. Ugh. The pandemic starts with this moment. Yes. Well, no, not because of the handshake. Hashtag social distancing. Hashtag never touch Donald Trump. The original sin was this. Barack Obama's administration has, has put a thousand people on the job for six months to prepare briefings for the Trump people. And the idea is the day after the election, hundreds of people from the Trump campaign are supposed to roll in and learn things from like how you run the nuclear arsenal or how you run the weather service or how you prepare for a pandemic. And Trump fired his transition team right then and nobody ever went and got those briefs. Yes, the massive USDA, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, which manages our nuclear weapons. People just didn't show up. Well, okay, they didn't skip every briefing. For example, this meeting that had been staged between outgoing Obama cabinet officers and incoming Trump cabinet officers, where they played a, a little tabletop game where they prepared for a pandemic. And during this game, Wilbur Ross, incoming Secretary of Commerce, fell asleep, was snoring. You see, Donald, Ross doesn't just fall asleep when you're talking, he also does it when it's important. To simplify things, the Obama administration even prepared a pandemic playbook, also apparently ignored. But again, why? Is this just more of a failure not to have cloned Jared enough times? 
You know, it's funny. One answer is knowledge makes life complicated. If you've got some very simplistic view of the world, the government's all stupid. It's all a bunch of poorly paid bureaucrats. I don't need to pay any attention to them. Um, it's easier to, to move through the world if you aren't bothered by lots of knowledge. And I do think of Donald Trump as the ultimate expression of the desire to remain ignorant. The mindless menace of the coronavirus didn't come out of nowhere, but neither did this mindless menace. I don't think of Donald Trump as like a break with the past so much as the natural conclusion of 40 years of Republican rhetoric about the federal government. Yes, let's rewind further to when we had a president with a more dignified background and to this famous quote from him. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Really? Worse than, can anyone here on this airplane fly this airplane? Or, hey, everyone, please come to my improv show tonight. Fast forward, CPAC 2017. A gloating Steve Bannon describes the goal that is now within reach. Deconstruction of the administrative state. And if you... Yay, you did it. And look where we are. Many agencies lack permanent leaders and or have unqualified leaders and or leaders who hate the very agency they're leading. Remember Mike Brown, the hapless horse show executive in charge of FEMA during Katrina? It feels like it's all Mike Brown's now, all the way down. That means we're all less safe. I've got a lot of sort of free-flowing terror and anxiety. Could you give me a concrete target to really worry about? What else should I be losing sleep over? Well, how many nights do you want to lose sleep? I'll give you a short list. One, the National Weather Service, which actually keeps us safe from the weather, might actually be systematically disabled terrorist attacks on the power grid in the country. The dollar, nuclear bomb that's now floating around in Eastern Europe, no bottom to a financial crisis. A bit of advice. Loose nuclear material. Don't ask Michael Lewis this sort of question if you don't want to know the answer. Michael, is there any upside to all of this. The hopeful thing here is that we bounce out of that, of this, this whole event, with the idea that the federal government is useless or pointless or a deep state or whatever nonsense you want to think. That idea just dies, or at least is severely damaged. Otherwise, we're all going to die. Yes, so let's end with a reminder of what are actually the nine most terrifying words in the English language. Don't worry, Jared Kushner is in charge of it. There's a bunch of things you need to know for context here. This was in Sydney, Australia. Okay, so that was Samantha B's show and uh, her take with a uh, commentary from Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis is... Uh... Daniel Muggleton had done a joke about Australia's immigration policy being favorable. Let's see. Look for some Facebook. From the Labor Beat. I want to play one here about low-income workers all around the world. Myanmar, the old uh, Burma. Okay, so let's play this. Break. of this world we have seen major protest in solidarity with the 
uprising here in the United States and also highlighting similar instances in their own country all around the world. Solidarity from many different places. Uh, Paris, France, I know, has been one that a lot of people have seen all over the news. But one place I bet you haven't seen in the news that is sending solidarity are workers in Myanmar, garment workers in Myanmar, who are working in these sweatshop conditions making the clothes for these major brands, many of which you know. You can see here this photo um, to my left there. Federation of Garment Workers of Myanmar stands in solidarity with uh, the American sisters and brothers in the struggle against racism. Black Lives Matter. Um, really powerful. We also have a video message here that came from those garment workers to uh, those struggling in the United States. <laughs> Workers of Myanmar do not accept fashion. I stand with brothers and sisters in the U.S. who are protesting, and I support their struggle. Certainly workers there in Myanmar taking a deep interest in showing solidarity with the uprising against racism happening in this country. And to give you more information about what's happening for these workers in their country, we were able to interview a labor organizer helping to push forward, helping these workers push forward their efforts to unionize and improve their working conditions. And we are very honored to be joined by the labor organizer, Andrew Tillett-Sachs, who's based in Myanmar for this conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for being with us here on Breakthrough. Hey, Eugene. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I think that for a lot of our listeners, there's probably some general knowledge that in Southeast Asia and in South Asia, uh, the garment, there's a lot of the garment industry, obviously, a lot of the manufacturing is happening there. Um, I think people know that has maybe some connection to some of the brands they know. But if you could just uh, maybe give us a sense of the lay of the land in Myanmar and the broader region to the extent you think it's relevant of sort of what, what's the state of the industry, of the garment worker industry, and what is the connection to some of the brands people may know here in the U.S.? Well, I guess the general state, Eugene, of the garment industry is that it's absolute hell to work in, just in general, even before the, the pandemic. Um, the working conditions are unbelievably bad. Um, it's almost impossible to describe until you see it yourself. But, you know, if you've read stuff like up in St. Clair's, the jungle, um, or, you know, descriptions of the factories in England in the 19th century, mm. it's like that where, you know, most of the workers are working 70 to 75 hour weeks. Um, in Myanmar, it varies a little bit, but in Myanmar, almost all the workers are making roughly, um, you know, three to four dollars a day. Mm -hmm. um, the sexual harassment of in the garment industry of women workers is unbelievably rampant. In, in Myanmar, for example, the workforce is about 90% young female, and the sexual harassment is, uh, I would say, in about 19 out of every 20 factories that of the workers I'm able to talk to. Um, not clean drinking water, no fire exits, workers aren't allowed to use the bathroom, workers aren't allowed to leave the premises of the factory until the shift is done. Things like that are commonplace. So it's, it's just an absolute hellacious, inhumane 
place to work. And this is where most of your clothing is being made. I mean, these are not exceptionally bad places. This is where Nike's produced. This is where Adidas is produced. This is where Zara's produced. This is where H&M produced. Most likely the clothes on your back are made under these conditions um, with this type of exploitation being the foundation for how you get your clothing. Mm. Um, and so that's before the pandemic. I guess I would say now the state of affairs is if there was any hope for this industry and the working conditions changing, it was in some of the burgeoning trade union movements in these countries where workers are, uh, you know, expectedly organizing uh, unions, organizing strikes, organizing fight backs to demand that they get treated with, with some humanity and to demand that they get s at least some share of the mass profits they're producing for these brands. Um, and the pandemic has essentially brought on, you know, a period of what people would describe as disaster capitalism or, or shock doctrine tactics from the capitalists in these countries, from the factory owners and from the brands, right. where they're attempting to seize upon the crisis to try to essentially extinguish any of the flickers of worker organizing or any of the, you know, flickers of, of, of trade union organizing and labor movements that have been starting to, to gather. And so what you're seeing now is things like union activists who are speaking up for improvement of working conditions or for things just like proper PPE and COVID-19 safety precautions being thrown in jail. Um, so in Myanmar, for example, there's several cases where workers have led strikes in demanding proper safety precautions in these factories due to COVID-19. Several of them have been thrown in jail and are sitting in jail right now. In Cambodia as well, you know, we've got a case where a union leader posted on Facebook when an employer was refusing to give them proper PPE. She's been in jail for two months with her health deteriorating. Mm. In addition to the imprisonment, we're seeing a lot of mass firings of union members. So factories where they have organized a union, the factory owners are coming and saying, well, we're not getting as many orders from the brands because of the pandemic. Right. And we're not getting as much raw material um, because of uh, you know, international border restrictions. Thereby, we have to dismiss all of the union members. And that's 500, 600, 700 union members while they permit the non-union workers to keep working. So it's a complete facade, right? right. It's just attempting to use COVID-19 as a pretext to bust the unions uh, and it's getting worse and worse. And it's generally the factory owners taking these actions to try to bust the unions, but it's the brands who they supply who are remaining silent, even though they really hold all of the power in the industry. Right. In the garment industry, when the brands say jump, the factory owners say how high, it's the, it's the power dynamic in the industry. And so even though we're contacting all of these brands, they know all of this stuff is going on, they're refusing to speak up about it, they're remaining silent about it, and they are deeply, deeply complicit in some of these awful violations of workers' rights and mistreatment of the workers making their clothing going on right now. 
I'm really, uh, and thank you so much for that overview. And, and I really think that's such an important point that you ended on because, you know, the statements that you see released by these brands, oh, well, we're paying attention to it. Oh, we know this is going on. I mean, it's all just like fobbing it off on, well, you know, those people over there, we don't control them. But I mean, without this, the huge amount of capital, the infrastructure, the branding, all of that, the industry doesn't exist. So, I mean, it seems like that in and of itself is such a major element of this I think for people, you know, our, our audience mainly in the United States to understand is that the, the complicity for this rests so heavily, um, you know, with, with entities that, that we know, and it's not just some, you know, oh, well, you know, there's nothing we can do sort of problem. Absolutely, Eugene. So for me, it's not just theoretical. I can say concretely, I sit in these negotiations with the factory owners and the factory owners say to us directly if you get the brands to tell us to do something for example to reinstate the workers we fired we'll do it so far they have not told us to do it so we're not going to do it hmm. there can be no mistake despite how much the brands try to pass the buck in terms of responsibility over the workers making their clothes, right? Despite how much they try to deflect responsibility, the people responsible for the awful working conditions in the garment industry are the brands. They know about it, they know they have the power to change it, and they choose not to because it would mean a small dent into their astronomical profits. Mm -hmm. Or what are some of your thoughts about how to bring together workers movements across borders because as, as many differences as there are with these globalized supply chains it just seems more and more um you know that the people on either end making the garments at zara and you know the 19 year old selling them uh, sometimes the 45 year old selling them in, in the shopping center here uh that on both ends uh there has to be some connection yeah i mean i think you're right eugene in that particularly in the garment industry, international solidarity is, part, is, is very important because you've got the workers in one country, the factory owner is usually based in another country, and then the brands and the consumers are usually based in a third country. And so any attempt to really mobilize pressure on all three of those things by necessity usually involves um, workers or activists from a variety of different countries. So in some of these campaigns we have going on now, you know, a like these union busing campaigns in Myanmar, the union is being attacked in Myanmar. The union, the workers are now coordinating with workers in, in Korea, where the factory owners are based, where, uh, workers in the US, where some of the brands are based, workers in Spain, where some of the brands are based, and coordinating kind of a global pressure campaign. And so, I think you're going to see, um, you know, by necessity, if we're going to start winning some of these struggles, they're going to involve having workers and unions and activists from a variety of different countries coordinating. There's no other way to win. And I mean, my, my general thinking, Eugene, is through those struggles, if we can launch as many different struggles, um, very concrete struggles, um, we will be able to build the type of relationships where there's going to be that type of exchange. Wow, well, what a powerful interview.
And I just want to say, this is why Breakthrough News is so important. You wouldn't hear this story. You wouldn't get this interview on CNN, MSNBC, nowhere else. And I think that's because international workers' solidarity might be a little bit bad for the big corporate business. This is such yeah, no, that's for sure. Yet another reason to become a patron of Breakthrough News as we continue to bring you things that you have never seen or heard from the front lines of workers' struggles all around the world. But that is going to do it for our show here today. That's right, Eugene. As always, make sure to follow us if you aren't already on social media at BT Newsroom. I know I was out, um, got the COVID coverage, $600, which really helped me until we got called back to work. But now my daughter and her roommates are facing the fact that they could be evicted soon. For several months now, the U.S. government has provided $600 a week in unemployment insurance. On top of normal payments, 4.1 million Americans lost their jobs between the first and second weeks of July alone making up a total of 51 million people who have lost their jobs since the start of the pandemic. Senate Republicans are pushing a $1 trillion relief package that would cut the additional unemployment benefit down to only $200 and provide a range of benefits to businesses. Republicans are also not, as of yet, including protections for renters in their proposal, but have included some absurd measures like $686 million for new F-35 fighter jets part of what some estimate to be $7 billion in weapons spending in a so-called coronavirus relief bill. And in May, House Democrats approved the $3 trillion HEROES Act that would extend the $600 benefit until the end of the year and give nearly $200 billion for rental assistance and mortgage relief. Both proposals include another round of $1,200 checks. 82% of Americans believe that a one-time stimulus check of $1,200 from the CARES Act was not enough to pay for living expenses in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Instead of a one-time check, the majority of those polled say that stimulus checks should continue throughout the duration of the pandemic. The debate in Congress over relief for working and poor people in the U.S. stands in stark contrast to the $4.5 trillion that was quickly funneled into the financial system via the Federal Reserve. This all paints a clear picture as to whose interests are really being looked after by politicians in Washington. I hit the streets of Midtown Manhattan to speak with people on their thoughts on the proposed relief bills, how the pandemic has impacted them personally, and what they believe working people need the most in this time. So I actually ended up losing my job, my apartment, most of my belongings. Uh, right now I'm hustling, trying to look for a teaching job in a system where we don't even know if schools are gonna be open. I think they should extend it for the simple fact that jobs is not opening. And um, as an everyday American, and this is terrible. I was I was currently working in the pandemic, but you know I got laid off for like certain reasons, and it, it affected me heavily. I'm a healthcare worker. I'm an occupational therapist, so I work in an acute care hospital. Non-essential, essential staff were laid off, and they have not gotten their jobs yet. I can tell you right now that in my profession, in the course of March to now, there are half as less jobs there are now than there were before, and most of us graduate with six-figure debt after graduate school. And our jobs are needed, but because there's not enough money out there to pay for it, they're not paying for it. I know I was out, um, got the COVID coverage, $600, which really helped me until we got called back to work. 
but now my daughter and her roommates are facing the fact that they could be evicted. And I have a lot of friends whose families are undocumented immigrants, you know? So they can't really apply for like the benefits and stuff like that. So it's like, it's been really rough for them. So like with the stimulus package, I have family members who just had to use it to pay for rent, like just for one month. People are gonna still keep going out because they need to work. The virus is gonna keep spreading. People are still gonna keep dying and this is gonna last longer. So there are so many reasons beyond the basic humanitarian reasons to give people this money to survive, to live, to pay for their medications, which I'm not even going to talk about that. You, you need this to stop the spread of the virus. It is, that's the, the basic answer. You want people to not go out, give them money, keep them in their house. People need to be taken care of. And if they're not taken care of, like, until, I don't know what's going to happen by the, by the time the election time comes, whether that's going to totally change or not. But you need to take care of the people now. If, Either way, Democrat or Republicans, they have to cover the people. That's who they're here for. I think the government should, like, you know, as long as the pandemic is here and it's going on, I think it should go on for however long as far as the rent crisis. They should keep it going. They shouldn't cut it off so soon. You can't cut it off if you ain't solved the problem. So I feel like the government is getting richer while the poor are getting poorer. And it has to stop because if you really think about it, the poor or the middle class is what really runs the world and what runs this country. We spend more money in the military than 11 countries combined. And so they're really gonna have to cut that thing down. Doesn't it show something of society that people are making more money being able to pay more things with the money the government's giving them than the money they should be making from their, from their work? That's a problem. They're not a problem. The system is a problem. I know I was out um Okay, that was um voices of working people. You know, what's going to happen now? As I was saying, um as I was saying the contradictions implicit in your situation as a worker are now exposed. Okay? Yeah, that guy's got a lot of money. He's rich. I'm not. Now, when the pandemic comes along, when a situation comes along, we see the difference between that person and you. You have to go to work. These people who are just talking have to work. In order to survive. That's capital society. And we have never, never put in place cooperative institutions. <clears throat> there was a flicker of it during the New Deal. Then government realized that it, it was cutting its nose to spite its face by taking money from its working people, by jamming them. So now that situation is repeated. All of a sudden, you're a worker. You're a slave. They're telling you to go back to work. They're telling you to get up and go back to work, teacher. Essential workers, contact workers. They're telling you, get up and go back to work. What are you going to do? We'll have to see. We'll have to see what happens. Um, 
play some music, huh? How about good cop, bad cop? Ice Cube.
racist motherfucker. Black police showing out for the white cop. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're under control. Now you do what they told you. Now you're
returning the favor by issuing an urgent message for my fellow Americans. A bold message you won't hear from the mainstream media or from the talk.
Okay, we heard from Carlos Santana there. <clears throat> Everything's coming our way from Santana's greatest hits. And then before that, we had straight out of Compton. And uh, Prophets of Rage before that. Uh, Ice Cube, I'm sorry. Ice Cube and his song, Good Cop, Bad Cop. Admonishing uh, good cops to stand up and change policing. I still think that's about the only way it's going to change. Santana gave us a shot of uh, of uh, hope there. Hope, right? As Michael Lewis said. Maybe we're all just going to die. Well, the great director John Ford in his last, one of his last pronouncements said, things are going to get better. He sort of came out of the shell of this gruff, alcoholic, you know, father type, right? And um, said, you know, Things are going to get better. Okay, so uh, we're going to get a call any minute from our capital correspondent, T.J. Coleman. In the meantime, Lemon Grove changed Texas. What is uh, Jeff Bezos up to? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, these people, I don't know. We've got something here about the uh, big student strike. Start that out, and then if we get our call, Something I can personally attest to. From KQED. Hey everyone, this is Bay Curious, and I'm Olivia Allen Price. I've been doing a lot of reflecting recently about times in my life when racism was on display and I was either too young or too naive or too privileged to see it. And one thing that I'm questioning is my entire history education, K through 12. For the most part, I was taught these whitewashed, simplistic fables, and I, I do mean fables. You know, Christopher Columbus was this bold risk taker. Native Americans and pilgrims were friends who sat down to a tasty feast. The civil rights movement ended racism in America. After that, everything was fine. Looking back now, it's embarrassing. I don't even really want to admit it here on the podcast. But I know it's been a revelation that some of you have had too. And it's one today's question asker had years ago. Filipino American history, Asian American history, like Latinx American history, it's not being taught in classrooms. Like... I kind of didn't know my own history. This is Michael Verai. Uh, I'm 23 years old and I currently live in Mountain View and I'm a recent graduate of UC Davis. 
In college, Michael took action to fix this history education he got. He minored in Asian American studies. And one day, a professor mentioned something that he's been wondering about ever since. That there was actually a revolution in the Bay Area for an ethnic studies field. Is this true? And how did it happen? I'll go ahead and answer that first question. Yes, it's true. The field of ethnic studies was born from a revolution at San Francisco State in 1968. How it happened? That's today's episode. You couldn't escape it. You look around the campus, there are only a handful of minority students. We wanted to find out and be educated about ourselves. And if we could not get that, then nobody can get an education. The police came down heavy, hard, and they just began cracking skulls. Today on Bay Curious, we're revisiting the longest student strike in U.S. history, a five-month standoff between students and administrators at San Francisco State that ultimately led to the first college of ethnic studies in the nation. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, family-owned, operated, and argued over since 1980. Proud supporter of independent thought, whether that's online, over the air, or in a bottle. More at sierranevada.com. Reporter Asal Asanapur has the story on how the student strike at SF State changed what students learn around the country. It was November of 1968. The U.S. was 13 years into the Vietnam War. American soldiers hiking their way through the sweaty jungles of South Vietnam, searching for an elusive enemy. Martin Luther King had been assassinated earlier that year. And the Black Panther Party, started in the Bay Area, demanded systemic change for black communities plagued by poverty and police brutality. That's what black students at San Francisco State wanted too. There are members of the Black Student Unions who are also members of the Black Panther Party uh, and vice versa. This is Nesbitt Crutchfield. He started at San Francisco State in 1967 as a business school graduate student, but he was also an aspiring revolutionary and joined the Black Student Union. It was the very first one in the country. I felt very privileged to be a member of the Black Student Union. It was very clear to me that the Black Student Union represented a very progressive energy, a very progressive voice, a very progressive thought among Black students at state, among Black students in the Bay Area. But just a small percentage of Black students went to SF State. Enrollment rates for minority students had dwindled down to just 4%, even though 70% of students in the SF Unified School District were from minority backgrounds. And Black students were just a fraction of that 4%. It was very unusual to see Black people in any positive positions. As a Black person, you expected, for all intents and purposes, to be one of the very, very few Black people in whatever classroom, laboratory, auditorium that you were in. It was overwhelmingly white. Amidst that whiteness, Black students were hungry to study their own history. The Black Student Union had been pushing the university to create a Black Studies department for nearly three years. But administrators resisted the idea, so students created their own spaces to do that kind of learning. 
even though ethnic studies was not validated by the university, doesn't mean that that study wasn't taking place. Jason Ferreira works in the Department of Race and Resistance at San Francisco State's College of Ethnic Studies. He's spent years collecting oral histories on the student strike. There was something called the Experimental College, which was a student-run initiative for them to teach their own classes. So that would be one space. The Black Student Union had its own classes, so that was another space. Within these spaces, it wasn't just about the syllabus or the books they read. It was an era of young people asking questions and wanting to transform their communities, right? And that impulse, that, that hunger to transform one's communities is actually what forms the basis of ethnic studies. Okay, that's part one of our history of the student strike at San Francisco State, the longest student strike in American history. And so many things started there. I was lucky enough to be a uh, participant at the time. Next week we'll have chapter two. How did students marshal their power? Okay, the idea of ethnic studies was, was, one, it was there. How did students make that happen? We'll go through that next time. I wanted to talk about a little uh, fable of the two uniforms. And uh, this is a story about a reporter who goes to a... Uh, to a, a colonial dictator and uh, the, um, the white ruling ruling group you know with their with their white military uh, situation in power and the reporter says there are so very few of you law enforcement people and uh, colonials, and so very many, many, many of the natives, how do you manage to keep them under control? So the colonial dictator stops for a minute, thinks about it, and he says, well, when we go over to the place where the Reds live, we wear white uniforms and beat them up and arrest them and grab them off the street, throw them in cars. But when we go over to the blue neighborhoods, okay, we wear orange uniforms and we beat them and dominate them and kill them and throw them in jail to control them and keep them working, just like the others. Well, the reds and the blues are so busy fighting each other and insisting on who the real enemy is that they can't ever organize and get together to resist us. If they could do that, they could end our whole colony right here. So what can this one teach us? This one teaches us that it's all the same enemy whether it's the cops, uniformed cops, or whether it's the, the 
street fighters of the Trump administration, or if it's a suit of someone who's ripping you off, it's all the same enemy. And we needn't quibble about who, you know, who to struggle against. There's only one, the white male power structure to struggle against. Okay, let's play a little music here. I want to play a There it is. It's called Burn by Antique Soul. Half a mile from the county fair, and the rain came pouring down. Me and Billy standing there with a silver half a crown. Had the full of a fishing rod and the tackle on our backs. We just stood there getting wet with our backs against the fence. And it stoned me to my soul Stoned me just like Jelly Roll And it stoned me Yeah, it stoned me to my soul 
From the mountain stream, yet it stormed me to my soul. Saw me just like Chili Road, and it stormed me. Yet it stormed me to my soul. Saw me just like going home, yet it stormed. Van Morrison there in our uh, little mini set. Cut it a little short because I want to talk about an issue 
that needs to get more attention. Okay. People of color are rising up. Huh? People of color are creating a movement. The press focuses on African-American people, and rightly so. The uh, revolution against the most egregious forms of Jim Crowism have br brought forth a generation of leaders, a generation of people willing to stand up. Like John Lewis, of course. Oppression and terrorizing didn't just happen to African-American people. It happened to people we call Mexican-American, but uh, who name themselves Chicanos. So this is a this is a uh, a column by a man named Ruben Salazar, who was a columnist for the L.A. Times and wrote about the flashpoints between the white power structure and the police and the uh, Mexican-American Chicanos who lived right next to them. So he wrote this. What is, who is a Chicano? All of a sudden you got people calling themselves Chicanos. What is it that Chicano wants? We love this story. This is beautiful. What does the Negro want? In the 1950s and 60s, you get white columnists, white uh, media hosts saying, what does the Negro want? Well, what do you want? So here's Ruben Salazar. A Chicano is a Mexican-American with a non-Anglo image of himself or herself. Chicano represents being told that Columbus discovered America when the Chicano's ancestors, the Mayans and the Aztecs, founded highly sophisticated civilizations centuries before Spain financed the Italian explorer's trip to the New World. Chicanos resent Anglo pronouncements that Chicanos are culturally deprived the fact that they speak Spanish is a problem. This is funny. In our schools, kids come in speaking Spanish, right? And they're discouraged from speaking Spanish. They're supposed to just speak English. So they, they learn to speak English, and then they go back to school and take Spanish courses <laughs> to get it back again. Why not just keep what you've got and improve on it? The Chicano will then contend that Anglos are Spanish-oriented at the expense of Mexicans. Certainly, we know far more European history. We're taught far more European history, including some Spanish history, than we're taught Mexican history. 
I never knew anything about Mexican history until I began to go there and read a little. They will complain when the government dresses up as a Spanish nobleman from Santa Barbara Fiesta, the Santa Barbara Fiesta. He's uh, insulting Mexicans because the Spanish conquered and exploited the Mexicans. It's as if the governor dressed like an English redcoat for a Fourth of July parade, Chicanos say. And you think you know what Chicanos are getting at. A Mexican-American will tell you that Chicano is an insulting term. And they even quote the Spanish Academy to prove that Chicano derives from chicanery. Chicano will scoff at this and say that such Mexican-Americans have been brainwashed by Anglos and their Tio Tacos, Uncle Tom. This type of Mexican-American, Chicano will argue, don't like the word Chicano because it's abrasive to their Anglo-oriented mind. What then is a Chicano? Chicanos say that if you have to ask, you'll never understand, much less become a Chicano. Actually, the word Chicano is as difficult to define as soul. For those who like simplistic answers, Chicano can be defined as short for me Mexicano. It has been suggested that the word came from Chihuahua, the name of a Mexican state bordering the U.S. This version then contends that Mexicans who migrated to Texas call themselves Chicanos because having crossed into the United States from Chihuahua, they adopted the first three letters of their state, Chi, and then added Cano for the latter part of Quejano. Ruben Salazar, check it out. It's uh, was written in the Los Angeles Times shortly before uh, Salazar himself was killed during what was called the Chicano Moratorium, where Chicano students walked out of, s of classes, etc., and had a gigantic march. It was uh, about a lot of things. One of them was certainly the Vietnam War and the overrepresentation of soldiers of color in Vietnam. But it was also about these things Salazar is talking about. Uh, what is a Chicano? Let's look at one other one now. I want to... How the Texas Rangers murdered thousands of Mexicans over 10 years from 1910 and were hailed heroes as state representative suggests history is repeating itself. The El Paso shooting has echoed Texas' dark cha chapter of La Matanza, the slaughter, from 1910 to 1920. During La Matanza, rangers and white civil civilians murdered thousands of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. Violence broke out following the Mexican Revolution, that's about 1910, and the influx of Mexican migrants into the U.S. 
Texas Ranger Division was largely responsible for the deaths of 5,000 Mexican-Americans during La Matanza. Some 300 murders took place in the Rio Grande Valley during the 1915 massacre alone. From 1848 to 1928, there were an estimated 571 lynchings. Yeah, that's it. You heard it. Lynchings of Mexican-Americans. A probe called the Canales Investigation was opened into the brutality of the Texas Rangers and state police against Mexican-Americans in 1919. The charges were eventually dropped. It's not far from what was exactly happening a hundred years ago, State Rep. Terry Canales said on the El Paso shooting. The shooter had shared a white supremacy manifesto, and his attack was to stop a Hispanic invasion of Texas. Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio this week. We're talking about uh, August of 2019. Descendants of a terrible 1915 massacre where Texas Rangers slaughtered hundreds of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. It's happening all over. So keep this in mind. We can talk about a geographical shift here in the south and and southeast. The victims were by and large African Americans, and they continue to be. Here in the west and the southwest, hundreds, thousands of Mexicans, Mexicans, Chicanos. Killed by the Texas Rangers. Now, the, there's a big campaign now to change the name of sport teams. Uh, the Washington R's can't say the word. Other others that play off their Indian identities. What about the Texas Rangers? I mean, to one segment of. Anglo culture, Texas Rangers are heroes. We used to watch on TV. Tales of Texas Rangers, listen to Joel McRae on the radio. Ranger, what's happened? Ranger, Ranger this, Ranger that. Well, to another segment of the population, the Latinx, that's offensive. The Texas Rangers is offensive. It would be like calling the San Francisco Ku Klux Klan. At any rate, don't believe it'll happen anytime soon, but it certainly is a valid suggestion. Waiting for our phone call from Davis now. Kamala Harris. We're going to talk a little about Henry Wallace today. Labor notes. Brooklyn Teamsters protest UPS 
harassment of black shop stewards. Australian green bans when construction workers went on strike for the environment. In 1971 to 1974, the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation conducted 53 strikes. Strikers' demands were to preserve parkland and green space to protect the country's architectural heritage and protect working class and other neighborhoods from destruction. Green bands were the first environmental strikes by workers almost a half century later. They remain the largest and best Okay, there's our call. Hello? Let me see if I got it. Can you hear me now? Hi, hello? Hi, Vita. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. Thanks for calling. <clears throat> yeah. You're a little, the sound is a little far away. It's a little hard to hear you. Is is this better? Yeah, much better. Okay. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, We were talking about uh, people's work and how it's affected by the the pandemic uh, and how people are always saying we're all in this together, but it's obvious that some people have to go back to work and some people don't. Yeah. Some people don't have to work. Yeah, definitely. Um, so definitely. I'm wondering, uh, you, you're you in the middle of getting your education. Uh, what's going to happen in the fall at UC Davis, for example? Um, it seems like in the fall they're going to be doing uh, virtual instruction and uh-huh. there are going to be some classes that you can come to in person that need labs, and then they're going to have staggered attendance. I see. For those classes, but like for the classes I'm taking, they'll be online. These are like lecture classes, huh? Yeah, and they're going to open the campus up and stuff. The campus is already a little opened up, so. Yeah, they're opening up here and there, but I agree with you about the jobs and stuff. It's pretty bad how... There are some people who not only have to go back, but their work isn't giving them any, like, personal protective equipment or any sick days or any anything. And then, you know, the the pressure on them, it's like they're slaves and they've been ordered back to work, right? There are, you know, lawmakers saying, well, we don't want to give them too much money or else they won't work which kind of lays bare the whole structure of uh, of the labor market in the United States, you know? They've got this yeah. gun to your head, and if you can't work, even if it's yeah. not your fault, so... No, it's crazy also because they're not providing, like, personal protective equipment, so if people go, they're basically, like, signing on to get this virus, technically. Like, in a way, if they go to work, 
sometimes they're putting themselves in such a dangerous position where they're essentially just agreeing to get the virus because they have to work. Yeah, right. Put yourself on on the line. There's a lot of concern, I think, among teachers, both at your level and um, elementary, which I taught, that that, uh, distant learning will replace live teaching. Even the governor of New York, uh, Cuomo came out and said, we're never going to go back to the point where you got one teacher with 30 kids, you know, in a classroom. He's That's envisioning, weird. you know, cutting expenses by putting more education online and at distance. Wow. Yeah, they're trying to take advantage of anything they can now. They're trying to get every little possible thing they can while we're all worried and freaking out. They're trying to take advantage of it. That's pretty messed up. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Andrew Como is a big fan. No, yeah. Here, um, <laughs> here it's pretty much the same also. So. Well, are people there? Know. Are people living there? Yeah. Yeah. There are some. Yeah. And, like, people have a lot of parties and stuff. I always hear parties. So... People are really taking it seriously, and there's like UC Davis Athletics is practicing for the fall already, wow. and like I go out to the field to work out and stuff, yeah. um, and I always see people like, you know, playing games really close, like basketball or soccer or something, oh, yeah. so there are people out here, but they're not really taking it that seriously sometimes. Too bad. So how's the housing market? Have the prices of apartments it's- gone down? It's funny because a lot of them are still trying to keep their high prices, uh-huh. and it's like, that's not going to work. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they're still trying to keep up the high prices. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Well, I wonder how that's going to shake out, because in the fall, there'll be fewer people living who need to live near the campus. Oh, yeah. There'll be a lot of yeah. people who can be sitting over in Schenectady or something and do everything online. Right. And I think, like, they made that recent announcement yesterday about UC Davis when they're going to come back. So I think a lot of people were waiting for that Uh announcement to see if they're going to sign a lease or anything. So now probably things will change. Like, I've already gone around and looked a bit, and the prices are still the same. But now that it's official, it'll probably change. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, they don't really have any options. I wouldn't be surprised. But, yeah. I mean, I got lucky because I was doing, um, I was working for about a year yeah. at an office before, so I was able to get unemployment. Oh, that's very good. And did you get the $600 extra? Yeah. Yeah. That's I was wonderful. Able to get all that because, like, I was working for a year, and, um, like, I worked a lot, so I ended up getting it, and that's the way I'm able to, you know, get along for now. I'm glad to hear that that money is going somewhere good. It's about to run out, and we'll see what they do, uh, see what they do if they're going to renew it, because a lot of people are going to fall off that cliff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. It's bad, like, so many people, their whole lives are changed from this, and it's going to take them years to get back 
from it, like financially or medically, like it's going to be really bad because the virus has like a long term effect on a lot of people's um, vital organs. Yeah, that's right. It's not just you get it like Trump says. You get it and you're over it. No, yeah. They don't understand the immunity to it yet. So, no, yeah, it's like, it's a very, very stressful time. Of course. It sure is. Um, Yeah. Okay, well, I want to thank you for calling in. Yeah. And reporting on the campus scene. Thank you. And we're going to see what's going to happen when kids don't show what? up. We're going to see what's going to happen when kids don't show up for school and teachers don't show up to work. Right. No, yeah. They'll realize it. It's going to hit well, the fan. They're going to realize how much they miss teachers, too. Yeah. No, I can't even imagine, like, little kids being in a classroom without a teacher there or, like, little kids learning without a teacher. They need a teacher. Okay, Vita, thanks for calling. Yeah. Hope you have a good week. We'll talk next week on the show. Nice talking to you. This is Thank our you campus our campus correspondent reporting in about student life. Thanks again, Vita. Bye bye. Okay, love you. Bye. Okay. Ciao. That was our campus correspondent Vita talking about uh, student life in these days let's listen to some neighbor history in two Another working-class martyr, Frank Little. These are people who put their lives on the line for you. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. Frank Little, an activist for the Industrial Workers of the World, or Wobblies, was lynched near Butte, Montana. His beaten body was found hung off a railroad trestle. On it was pinned a disturbing note. It read, quote, others take notice. First and last warning. 3-7-77-L-D-C-S-S-W-T. The numbers were the measurement of a grave. Each letter was the initial of a union organizer. The letter L for Frank Little was circled. The warning was clear. Union organizers leave town or die. Butte was copper mining country, and efforts to unionize the miners had turned the area into a battleground. Frank had arrived that July to help in the efforts to support striking miners. Frank Little was a leader of the IWW with experience organizing free speech campaigns, lumberjacks, and miners. Although not much is known of his early life, it is thought his mother was Cherokee and his father was a Quaker. He organized the wives of the miners to join in the pickets and helped build solidarity between the multiple unions that organized in the area. 
the Anaconda Mining Company took note of his presence, but could not find a legal means to stop him. Then, early on that fateful day, men came to his boarding house. They claimed they were police officers. They gagged Little and stuffed him into a car. They beat him and drug him through part of town tied to the car bumper. And it was at the county line where they hung Frank Little's body. News of the atrocities spread far and wide. Thousands attended the funeral. Not surprisingly, the authorities never found his murderers. Some doubt they ever tried. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1970. That was the day that the NFL Players Association went out on strike. The American Football League and the National Football League officially merged that year. Each league had their own Players Association. With the league merger, they joined forces into one union. The players elected John Mackey, a tight end with the Baltimore Colts, their first president. Frustrated by pay and lack of control over their careers, the players voted to strike. The strike lasted for two days. The owners threatened to cancel the season. The NFL used its powerful PR machine to vilify the players in the press. They characterized the players as greedy and stoked fan anger over the walkout. The two sides met again at the bargaining table and reached a collective bargaining agreement. The agreement covered four years. The players won improvements to their pensions and dental care. They also secured the right to have agent representation for the first time. But many of the disagreements over pay and control remained unsettled. In 1974, the players were back out on the picket line for five weeks during the summer. Eight years later, a 57-day strike disrupted the season. Seven weeks of games were canceled. Then again, five years later, the union went on strike during the season. This time, some of the players crossed the picket lines, including stars like Joe Montana and Lawrence Taylor. This broke the strike without settling on a contract. Today, the NFL Players Association continues to push for improved player safety and revenue sharing. The impact of concussions on players' long-term health remains an important issue for the union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1965. That was the day that U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed Medicare into law. This federally funded health care program provides assistance to one of the country's most vulnerable populations. The elderly. At the time the law was enacted, many seniors found it difficult, if not impossible, to get private health insurance. President Johnson signed the law in a ceremony in Independence, Missouri, 
the hometown of former President Harry Truman. While in office in the 1940s, Truman had proposed a national health insurance plan. Unfortunately, he was unable to get his plan through Congress. President Johnson wanted to recognize Truman's efforts. At the bill signing ceremony, President Truman received the very first symbolic Medicare card. The law went into full effect in 1966. 19 million people registered for the benefit. One of the labor leaders who fought for Medicare was Nelson Hale Cruikshank. Nelson held several positions for the AFL-CIO, and he spent his career advocating for social insurance protections for working people. He earned the nickname the Father of Medicare. The same year that the Medicare law was passed, Cruikshank explained why he thought it was so important to reform health insurance. He said, quote, In too many doctor's offices today, the Hippocratic Oath has given way to the Dow Jones average. By 2010, 48 million Americans received their health insurance through the Medicare program. 8 million were people with disabilities. The rest were seniors. The program has had a tremendous impact on the quality of life of millions of older Americans. Yet, since its inception, there have been those who aim to make it less accessible by scaling back benefits and raising the eligibility age. Okay, that's our uh, labor history for this week. Frank Little, a renowned organizer, the savagery with which he was attacked, the savagery with which people attack union organizers and, and labor advocates. This is the B, and it's about time for us to sign off. Um, see if we can get This is the B, signing off. Mississippi, goddamn. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, you're on the menu. Never, but never let your let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. I say labor. Labor and Love Radio. Where the labor meets the room. Everybody knows about Mississippi, God damn. Can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand the pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset and Governor Wallace has made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi, God damn. Hound dogs on my trail. School children sitting in jail. Black cat crossed my path. I think every day's gonna be my last. Lord have mercy on the land of mine. We all gonna get it in due time. I don't belong here. I don't belong there. I've even stopped.
try to say it's a communist plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. You lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady and you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie. My country is full of lies. We all gonna die and die like flies. I don't trust nobody anymore. They keep on saying go slow. That's just the trouble. Desegregation. Mass participation. Unification. Do things gradually. to be on L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. It's great to be on L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. It's probably the best time to be L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T, personally. Mm-hmm. I, I, the weather's great. You know, I, I checked the paper, and it says, if you plan to L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T, today would be the day. Yeah, so. yeah. The weather, yeah, it's really yeah. true. It's so true. So we are going to watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Carl, what is the movie? Today we're watching The Prisoner of Zenda. The thing is, we Ooh. don't want to get the channel that gives you ads. So audience at home, you have to put in The Prisoner of Zenda, Zen, like Zen Buddhism, okay. Z-A, The Prisoner of Z-E-N-D-A, 
1979 adventure. Now you got to put All in right. the word I do adventure see the... at the end to get to the correct one. Because I do see there's a listing for the legend, the prisoner of Zen, the 1979, and then the word YouTube in the title, but stay not away that from one. That guy. I'm stay away from that guy. That guy is bad news. All right, so ladies and gentlemen. We are LWAFLMOYT. You can find us on Twitter, LWAFLMOYT. You can find our great YouTube channel, LWAFLMOYT. We're on Facebook at Let's Let's Pull Makes Movie on YouTube. We stream first every Sunday at 2 p.m. on MutinyRadio.fm. We only have one product placement today, and that is please donate to the theater, uh, to the space at Venmo with at Mutiny Radio is our uh, uh, Venmo account. We are going to watch this movie and. Uh, we also recommend, why don't you subscribe to our podcast, LWFLMOYT. Why do you think I've been saying LWFLMOYT? Because I just want you to subscribe. God damn it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, very excited uh, to have in person, not oh, by proxy, Wait, Mike, I must let robot. the audience yes, know. Yes, sir. I, I must let the audience know. The channel we like is called Universal Galaxy Pictures, okay? It must be that. The Prisoner of Zen, the 1979 Adventure, and then choose Universal Galaxy Pictures. Slide that buff. Uh, Hit stick. pause. Yeah. Zero, zero, zero is where you want to be. Okay. Yeah. Move that slider back. And I'm going to subscribe to Universal Galaxy Pictures. And Carl, I'll be honest with you. They have a really good lineup. I'm going to yeah. probably pick a movie from there again. So uh, we are going to do this countdown, not us. We're very excited to have here in the studio a very special guest. He is the countdown king, the maestro descending gnome rules, Mr. Sunday Afternoon, Carl's Man Crush. Great to have him here. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to Brumbaugh. <laughs> One other thing, a final thing, Paul Brumbaugh. Hi, Paul. Hey, guys. How's it going, Mike? How's it going, Carl? When it's going right. I added a couple more things to your introduction. Did you notice? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. I liked it. Well, very cool. Absolutely. We are ready for you to kick off this countdown. All right. I'm really excited. It's a Peter Sellers movie. Love Peter Sellers. All right, guys. Here we go. You know the drill. Do it at home. Uh, wash your hands. Let's put your finger wash over your that little triangle. Let's keep it hovering, and let's do this thing in three. Two, one, go. We are doing by the music of Henry Mancini. Right off the bat, I want to hear the Universal theme song. I'm sorry. This is a Universal movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh shit, giant letters are covering the earth. Da, 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 da. But covering the earth in this movie is a hot air balloon. By the way, we hope you're watching this movie with us at the same time as listening to this podcast. There's no there's no reason not to do the other thing. Eh? Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers get top billing. Right. You think uh Peter you think Peter Sellers' ego was hurt when Peter Sellers got the top listing? <laughs> yeah, really. Be at Peter Sellers? And that yeah. is Peter Sellers in the balloon. Uh, he is playing the part of King Rudolph the Fourth. Ooh. I've never seen a Prisoner of Zenda movie. Oh, really? There are many of them. 
Yeah, I know this there. one. But this one is the only yeah, one is, that's uh, a comedy. Well, by this point. I mean, this movie came out in 1979, 1980. I don't think people were like, oh, I hope they remake Linda. Yeah. That was the 1932's greatest film. You see how it's that 1970s style of writing the text, the font? It's like the um, yeah. the paper chase or <laughs> what was that magazine? Oh, uh...